0: Uh, listen, it's a great uh, privilege for me to be able to spend some time with you uh, this morning. This was, I think, uh, something that's been wanted for a while in terms of the church doing teaching on Saturdays and having a bit more of an in-depth time. And so it's just a real a tremendous privilege for me to be part of this. Uh, I wish uh, very, very much uh, that it was in person. Uh, actually, I wish that with all of my heart that I could uh, be with you uh, together this morning and we could be in the same room and uh, share probably a little bit more interactive conversation that way. I think that that's one of the strengths, actually, of uh, the group that you are at Crestwick, Uh, you learn very well from each other. And I know that I learned so uh, so much uh, just listening uh, to you, uh, both in terms of like what's right and also spotting different heresies that you say every once in a while, you know, but you learn either way. And so uh, that's always been something which I, I was able to appreciate being with you. Now, what I want to do over the next four weeks is spend a little bit of time talking about Uh, the person of Jesus. And so it seems relatively obvious that Jesus is central in all that we do. And yet sometimes what happens is the things that are central in one generation are central and focused upon. And so you really actually learn the core cardinal realities, and that's what you center on. But then as time goes on, it seems that in a lot of churches and also, frankly, in a lot of ministries, what was the focus very quickly becomes assumed and then sort of set off to the side. And so you think you're building continually on what's central, but really in, for all intents and purposes, it's basically being neglected. It's basically uh, sort of you've, you've been there, you've done that and you're moving on. And then the next generation growing up Rather than actually building on what's central, they look at that as peripheral because you now, instead of really focusing on Jesus, for example, you're focusing for a whole generation on issues of social justice. And, And the first generation can do that, believing that their view of social justice is actually derived from Jesus. But then the next generation, they're a little bit more detached. Their view of social justice is rooted in social justice. And Jesus, Jesus just sort of floats off to the side. Another generation comes by and all of a sudden you're, you're dealing with what are roughly secular kind of ethics. And every once in a while you mention the name of Jesus. So over time, we really can actually lose the central things, even when we start out with them as our center and core and foundation. There's, there's just a natural drift that takes place. So For the next four weeks, uh, I want us to talk about Jesus coming back to the centrality of Christ and to go over some things that I almost want to apologize for, but I'm not going to. Um, Some things that probably you are familiar with. And so what I want to do is go over uh, a number of Bible verses for for this week and next week where I'm going to be really trying to demonstrate from the text, you know, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And I I realize we can all say that now, like sort of creedily, confessionally. If I were to say right now, do you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man? The answer would probably be yes, and rightly so. But one of the things I found, uh, even in in the seminary, is actually not the seminary, the the college level. I'll have my college students come in, and in first-year theology, I'll ask them, now, so, do you believe that Jesus is God? And they will all say yes. And then I'll say, okay, prove it to me from the Bible. And it's shocking how many of them cannot adduce a single verse in support of that proposition. And, and so I would, I'm not going to ask you to give your answer, but if you had to actually prove that Jesus was God, I mean, this is our, our central claim and we also claim that the bible is our foundation our bible the bible is our authority it's god's special revelation and so it it's it's small wonder when jehovah's witnesses come to people's doors even people who have been in the church for a long period of time you know, they, they show a few verses out of context, and people, even Christians, are totally derailed in terms of their witness. I mean, all they can do is, is basically, you know, tell them to go next door and close the door, because they have no ability to actually interact on something as basic as the deity of Christ. So I, I want to actually, and Sarah's leaving, and so I'm, I, I don't know what's going on there. She's she's, a, she's a offended that I, I mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses, so I'm sorry, Sarah, that you I know you've been trying to convert us to that faith for a long time as a secret agent of the Watchtower Society, but you can just do what you need to do Oh, or have coffee. Yeah, that's it's so boring. You need to wake up. This is not the best start. Um, Okay. So we're going to be going over some things which may seem pretty basic this week and next week. Then in the following two weeks, I hope to start drawing some of these strands together. Cause so I think that's something else that we we don't always do is we're so used to the conclusion at this point in church history that we don't always actually see the data that went into coming up with the conclusions. Okay. So today it's, it's going to be um, a fair bit of data. Now, I won't ask you for a show of hands. Now, you know, you can do that. Like, physically in your camera. Um, Or you can also, there's this little icon button that you can hit and a little hand will pop up. So if you have any questions or comments, yes, Sarah, exactly. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, you can pop up your little hand icon. And if I think that it's worth calling on you, then I'll respond. And if not, I'll ignore it. I think it's a technical glitch of some kind. Um, If there's any questions you have, if there's any comments you want then you can, uh, you can just raise your hand, you can say something, you can interject or ask questions at any point. Uh, I'm tempted to ask for there's some kind of shocked smiley ghost face now up here. I have no idea what that means. That's, that's like the heresy icon. So if I say a heresy, just pop that up. And it means like that this is some kind of theological disaster. Um, What was I gonna say? I was gonna say, oh, yeah, I was gonna say, I'm, going to, I'm tempted to ask you to put up your hand if you read all of Matthew's gospel, but don't do it. Uh, it's not going to be any kind of exam right now on the gospel of Matthew. That gospel reading pr- plan is just to kind of keep you steeped in the person of Jesus over the next month, okay? So we're not really going to be going through those texts in any detail. There'd be no time for that, but it just might help you in terms of familiarity. We're all thinking about Jesus as we read these things, okay? Now... There's a pivotal moment though in Matthew, and that comes, it's sort of the, the, the theological pivot of the book and also actually the narrative pivot of the book. Uh, does anyone know sort of what that key passage is? And this is the other great thing about, about Zoom. I can't really call on people exactly, like, unlike I could if we were all together. Um, and also, it's a, Zoom is a great opportunity to be humble. And so I know that you know, all know the answer, but you're reluctant to give it because you want your friends to have the opportunity of getting the glory, which you're humbly bypassing. Um, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, of course, uh, chapter 16. And obviously, no one would not have read a chapter 16 by now. Uh, so it's Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. And you're very familiar with this of course. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so this is something which uh, we'll talk more about this in, in a couple of weeks, actually. But this is the pivot of the gospel. The disciples now are realizing a little bit about who Jesus is. They, they know enough to know that he's the Christ. They still don't understand what being the Christ entails or what it means. I mean, that becomes very clear with what Peter says next in response. But this is still the big question of the day who do people say that I am? And then what about you? Who do you say that I am? So if we were to, to go around and you were to provide responses to this, well, maybe we will, because it's, it can't, it can't possibly be anything other than horrendous. If you just have to sit there and I'm monologue into a computer screen for an hour and a half. So uh, just, just a couple, there's a couple quick responses. Uh, what do, what do people in, in society, you, you know, you go into Tim Hortons, and, and you can't do that anymore. But if, if you did, you know, and you, you just talk to random people, what are the sorts of things you would hear about Jesus? Don't be shy, we only have so much time. Yeah, he was a moral guy. Uh, you know, he, he's a good moral teacher, uh, you know, maybe so, something like a a Jewish kind of Socrates or, you know, a, a Palestinian Buddha of some kind. Yeah, but, a, you know, a good moral kind of teacher. Well, what else? What else do you hear about Jesus these days? I assume he exists. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, and you actually don't even need to assume that Jesus existed any more than you need to assume that Julius Caesar existed. I mean, that, that's like an... In, controvertible historical fact uh unless you're an absolute fanatical atheist uh with an agenda i mean no one no one of any merit who actually makes their living as a historian doubts that jesus was a real person yeah what else anything else and if this is just too difficult i mean one of the things that we can do is next week i can have uh you know, we, we can have Steph go over a little sort of tutorial about how to actually like unmute yourself and you can make comments and, and those kinds of things. I realize that it's technically difficult. Um, so, you know, there, there are a lot of a variety of things that people will say about Christ today. Uh, in Jesus's day, of course, there were a variety of things people were saying too. So, you know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And, and what's interesting is that, if you were uh, in all sincerity to compare me to John the Baptist or Jeremiah, I mean, two things would happen. One, I would be completely convinced that you're deluded and two, I'd be somewhat flattered, right? So I mean, those, those two things, delusion and flattery sometimes go together actually. Uh, I think that would be an incredible compliment you know, for anyone. Uh, to sort of be compared in terms of ministry to someone like, you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist. And yet for Jesus, it's not a compliment uh, because Jesus is so much greater. And so the crowds, they, they recognize that there's something about him. There's something different about this person. He is, he is incredible, unlike anyone else. But all of their analogies fall short. He's, he's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist isn't even worthy to untie you know, the thong of his sandals. And he's not Jeremiah. He's, he's the fulfillment of the covenant that Jeremiah prophesies about. And so there's all kinds of things where, where they're trying to find a category for Jesus, and they're falling woefully short. And then this is when Jesus says, okay, well, there's lots of, there's lots of views about me, but who do you say that I am? It's very personal. What do you think about me? And this is where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he doesn't understand messiahship or what it means to be the son of God fully. And, and we'll see more about that a little bit later. All right. So here then is your pop quiz. Sam, are you ready for your pop quiz? Do you, you know how to unmute yourself? I'm ready. All right. So Sam, unmute you. Un- please, un- you. You're unmuted and ready to go. Okay. So we'll go on the point system. I Pardon? I was frozen. You're watching frozen. My computer was ruined. It's a great movie. <laughs> um, so we'll go on the point system. Five points for the first person who talks, even if you're wrong. And 10 points for the person who gets it right first. Okay. So. Who said this? I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Gandhi. Very good. Who's who who was that? That's fantastic. Do you know do you know what he said next? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh yeah, so he said I do not I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Uh, do you know what the con do you remember the context of that? It doesn't matter. You at least knew who it was. Ten <laughs> points. Ten points. And you're the first one to talk. So uh, may, I'll give you what's five plus ten? 17 <clears throat> points. Well done. Um he was actually in, he was in South Africa and he was noticing the absolute segregation of churches because of apartheid. And so he was outside of a church and he was asked what he thought about Christianity. And he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. In other words, he, he could see that there was just no um, demonstrable effects of the gospel in that society in terms of reconciliation and bringing people together. I like, but it's a fascinating statement from Gandhi. I like your Christ. Who said, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in might and seized the courage to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight for the world! He rose in might and seized the courage to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific! was his fight for the world. That was Adolf Hitler using the cleansing of the temple as a reason to drive the Jews out of Europe. Who said, Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. That was pretty generic. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. for the Civil Rights Movement. Silly, I think you're going to win this. I mean, 17 points. No one's even coming. We don't even have it. Everyone else is tied for second with zero. Uh, so you're, you're off to a clear, clear start here. You said... Christ was a great revolutionary. Fidel Castro. Yes. <laughs> oh, sure you were. Yeah, everyone can say. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say the right answer too. After the person said it first and got their points, so that's good. You can have a consolation prize. We'll give you uh, a third of a point. It's not bad. <laughs> so, uh, so Sylvia, is that you again? Was that, that was a pure guess, right? You had no idea. You had no idea. You just threw that out. That's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's what you, when you start giving quotes by world leaders, you may as well just throw out Castro for every single answer until you get it right. That's that's a brilliant strategy. So 17 plus 17, you now have like 24 <laughs> points. You're doing just absolutely fantastic. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Who was told, and you actually will know this in this sign, conquer? Yes, that's right. Constantine, the sign of the cross, the Cairo, before his, his great battle uh, to take control uh, out, out of the, the four Roman generals when, when Rome sort of split apart after the death of the emperor. So Constantine uh, fought and conquered in the sign, in the Cairo sign of the cross, in this sign. Conquer. All right, Hugh. Not bad. Seventeen points. Second place. Um, just two more here. If you don't, you don't even know, need to know very much about uh, Jesus. You just need to know a little bit of something about U.S. politics. No, uh, In on June tenth, two thousand. This person. And don't jump in just yet. I'm going to make this one as easy as possible. Uh, As the governor of Texas proclaimed Jesus Day as a legal day in the state of Texas, where he was governor. Later, as president of the United States, he said that God told him to invade Afghanistan and to put an end to terrorism. And then that God told him to go in and end the tyranny in Iraq. Who was that? George W. Bush. Sam McCallum. Sam, that's fantastic. Uh, I thought you only knew Irish politics. So I'm (laughs) going to assign you a very non-arbitrary 48 points uh, because you were so quick. And you also you're an international spokesperson for Irish Canadians who are aware of what goes on in Texas. That's that's hard to do. Uh, One more. And uh, there's a context to this. Uh, it was pretty controversial about a decade ago uh, there was a group wasn't an individual there was a group that were operating under the slogan jesus loves porn stars so i remember that controversy so it was a group called triple x church that was a christian organization that were trying that was trying to bring awareness to how destructive the uh, pornography industry is. And so they actually they went to adult porn trade shows in the States and set up a booth with this massive banner that said, Jesus loves porn stars and wore t-shirts with that slogan. And of course, their arguments are trying to tell people in this industry that there is salvation and that they can actually be sort of liberated and redeemed out of this lifestyle and that there actually is love it is real love for them Uh, and and all of that you know you you can't really fault that um the slogan is purposefully ambiguous right Mm -hmm. to to draw attention and and so there you can you can quibble with that a, a fair bit, I suppose, uh, the wisdom of actually going into those shows, another question altogether. So there, there was a lot of things that were, that were going around there. Now, all of that goes to say, in short compass, we have Castro, you know, that, who you could have just thrown out for every single one and hope you got it right once. Uh, you have Castro... You have Hitler, you have Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., George W. Bush, Constantine, a Christian organization trying to reach the pornography industry, and they're all enlisting Jesus. That has got to be thought-provoking at some level. What is it that, for one, makes people from such completely different walks of life Interested in Jesus in the first place. And how is it that people as different as Castro and Hitler and Martin Luther King Jr. And Gandhi can all think that at some level, Jesus supports what they're doing. How's that possible? Well, we know uh, since the late 1700s up until today, There has been something called the quest for the historical Jesus. And this is where people, historians uh, and New Testament scholars predominantly, have tried to figure out what can you actually know about Jesus historically? Who was he? Now, some people do this. They pursue this quest with a high view of scripture. Uh, So they're trying to work through the biblical data. Others are very skeptical. And so they try to figure out well, what has the church altered? What has the church changed? What would what were the original teachings of Jesus? You know, and they're and they're trying to they have all these different systems. Even the Jesus seminar, you may have heard of uh, John Dominic Cross said it was a big deal a while ago. Uh, I mean scholarship there was deplorable, but they had good scholars, which is very interesting. Um, they they're they're trying to figure out, well, what's all what can we actually know for about Jesus for sure? And they're getting rid of all the stuff that they think is just an accretion and not original and, and added by the church and all of the rest. And this went on for quite some time. There's, there's now we're into what's usually called the fourth wave of the quest for the historical Jesus. There, there's sort of uh, ripples that go different, different nuances and approaches. But the first quest sort of ended um, when Albert Schweitzer, who of course was a, you know, a, a terrific liberal in his approach to theology, Schweitzer was reading all of this literature on the historical Jesus, and he said, you know, isn't it really interesting that When you read the depiction of Jesus, sort of the biography of Jesus or the interpretation of Jesus by a particular scholar, Jesus invariably looks just like them. He he endorses the things they endorse. And he said, it's like everyone engaging in the quest for the historical Jesus is looking down into a deep well and at the bottom, seeing the reflection of their own face. And they say, that's Jesus. Now, if you actually look at the views of Jesus that this historical quest brought out, you can see that he's not wrong. It really was seeing Jesus in their own image. But the question for today is, are we doing that ourselves? How much... Do we find Jesus shaped to fit our ethics, our politics, our view of climate change, whatever it happens to be, our theology, the way we like to sing in church? I mean, how much of our view of Jesus really is based on us reading ourselves into him and seeing what we want to see? We just see Jesus reflected uh, the way that we are. Now, here are some examples. Okay. So those, those quotes aren't examples. Those quotes were for, uh, that was for the glory of winning the quiz and in a totally non-arbitrary way. And you would expect this from a pastor emeritus, you know, Sam McCallum, we will crown you as our champion with that one tremendous answer of George W. Bush Jr. So well done. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. And now you can tell us, because you know so much about George W. Bush, would you have voted for Donald Trump in this last election? Uh, no. Oh, really? That's oh. A, you wouldn't have? I, I would not have voted. You would not have voted. Is that because you're not eligible to vote in the States? Oh. <laughs> I, I can't even vote in Canada. So. Oh, really? Well, um, we'll not get into that. No, our well, our, our government regulations are doing something right then. So <laughs> proud to be a Canadian. All right. Um, now, I'm not sure how many of you have been following American politics as closely as Sam McCallum has been uh, since 2000, at least. But there was recently a presidential election. And as you know, um, that election was stolen through ballot fraud and the individual who won by a landslide, not even close. Um, in fact, I, I believe that the percentage was about a uh, hundred. Uh, somehow all of those ballots were changed and uh, the, the election was given to uh, an atheist communist. And so what's fascinating about all of this, of course, is that God is on the side of justice Now, I should have grabbed this earlier. Um, Here it is. Thankfully, it's right there. Um, How many of you have seen this book? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Very good. How many of you? Interestingly enough, um, I say Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I, I, in Toronto a few years ago, I was teaching a class of German missionaries and you know, I was teaching in Luke, you know, and he's talking about, you know, every man, everyone, Jesus calls, you know, he bids them to take up his cross and die. It's no cheap grace and all the rest. And so I say, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and they start laughing because in, that's not how you pronounce it. Right. And so then they would say it with their, with their German voices, you know, and it was something like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, mean, I can't do it. Anyway, anyway that's the, the, the don't, Pronounce it the way I pronounce it, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote that book, anyone recall? This is for this is for seventy-five, <laughs> 75 points. Sorry, I'm going to give that to Sam. Sam, <laughs> you get another? That's a that's seventy-five more points. Sam, you're doing fantastic. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, Eric Metaxas. Now. Eric Metaxas has written a variety of books. I mean, that book on Bonhoeffer is interesting. Uh, Bonhoeffer was, a, was he died um, young, hung by the Nazis, uh, because he was implicated in an assassination attempt uh, to, to blow up Hitler. It almost worked, actually, because of the configuration of the table uh, was supporting metal structures where Hitler was sitting. Uh, it, it didn't have regular table legs. It actually had... Um, Thick supports built under it. The briefcase that the bomb was in blew up, and the shrapnel sort of w- was deflected by these uh, support structures underneath the table. Or, or Hitler would have died if it was a different type of conference table. Interestingly enough, um, Bonhoeffer was was hung, and so we don't know quite what his theology really was. It was all very sort of in flux. He was working through it, so it's not like he was really writing books. I mean, there's a lot of it sort of notes and thoughts. Uh, unfinished. And so uh, Metaxas makes Bonhoeffer pretty evangelical and Bonhoeffer was not very evangelical. So the book's a little bit distorted that way, Uh, but it's an interesting read. Now, Metaxas also wrote an interesting, uh, it's not an interesting book. Uh, He he wrote a book on William Wilberforce, which is pretty disappointing uh, because it's a great theme, great figure, And the writing's just not very good. You kind of get the feeling it was just dashed out really quick. So anyway, Metaxas, great writer. William Wilberforce biography, not the best. The Dietrich Bonhoeffer biography, very interestingly written, not terribly accurate theologically. Um, Nonetheless, Metaxas has been in the news recently. Does anyone know why? Sylvia, it's because of his support of Fidel Castro. Just say it, throw it out there. Yes, Metaxas is uh, very, very outspoken in terms of being the leader in fighting against this fraudulent election. Uh, And actually his response to the riots on the Capitol building was that he was absolutely horrified and shocked that the liberal left so quickly denounced the Christian involvement in it. Like no shock that it happened, just shocked by the liberal outcry afterwards demonizing Trump supporters. That that That's what he's on record saying. He's also on record in an interview saying he thinks it's absolutely ridiculous that anyone could think that evangelicalism is damaged by its relationship with Donald Trump, comparing supporting Trump to comparing Wilberforce trying to end slavery. So this is one mm-hmm. of our uh, leading evangelical minds, at least uh, that's the claim that he makes, uh, that a lot of people in the liberal media uh, make as well. So Metaxas said, so to, this is after the Trump election results, he, he, he told Trump, uh, again, in a documented interview, he said, in terms of trying to write the election results, he said, I'd be happy to die in this fight. This fight is for everything God is with us. Jesus is with us in this fight for liberty. Jesus is with us in this fight for liberty, which means comparing himself to Bonhoeffer resisting the Nazis and comparing himself, which he actually does, and then comparing himself to Wilberforce trying to end slavery, which he actually does. Uh, Metaxas is saying that, Fighting to get Donald Trump back in office, even at the risk of. In another place, he says he'd be willing. Really, he, he's calling on Trump supporters to shed the last drop of their blood to support the president. Uh, this is military language, and with the and, and the media sees this. I mean, this is you know Washington Post, New York Times, that evangelicals are completely convinced it, with metaxas as a representative that it is worth fighting and dying with the endorsement of Jesus to have Donald Trump serve a second term in office. Jesus is with us in this fight for liberty. Wayne Grudem who's well-known for writing a systematic theology uh, has endorsed Mm -hmm. Trump as president. And if you ever read Grudem's book on politics, which, which frankly I don't recommend um, you, you discover, you know, amazingly that Jesus is simply a Republican you know, the, the, the entire Republican Party platform is found in the Gospels. It was amazing. I, I didn't know that. Uh, including a voucher system for homeschooling. I mean, who knew? I I I must have misread John's Gospel, chapter six, where Jesus says, you know, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. And I support a voucher system for education. Like, I mean, I, I, there's, there's a verse there that somehow I've skipped in all of my reading. and And, and yet... On the other hand, you have um, Gustavo Guterres, uh, probably the the seminal thinker in terms of liberation theology in the 1970s, who's arguing Mm -hmm. for, and there's a whole theological structure here, but but arguing for God always being on the side of the poor and the oppressed. There's a sort of a... uh, uh, can, uh, there's an agenda-driven reading of Exodus, where God brings out Israel because they're slaves. And so God is always on the side of the slave against the power. And so he's always on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized. And so Guterres is arguing that we need you know, uh, socialism, uh, we need to redistribute wealth that uh, the poverty of the nations is the fault of the exploitive capitalistic West. And so we need a communist revolution where blood is shed to redistribute wealth. This is what Jesus would want. Jesus is a socialist. Well, at some point, you just get tired of it. Well, is Jesus a socialist or does he want us to fight and die and shed our blood to get Trump back in the office? I mean, well, well, who is this Jesus who's so malleable, and, and how is it that people can see anything they want to see in Jesus? But that's what they do. If you're a communist, you can see Jesus as a communist. If you're you're you want to die for Trump, you can see Jesus as supporting your fight for liberty to die for Trump or or whatever it is. And of course, you know, you you, you know, you probably want to him to Mattias as well but he doesn't care. Is that there's a whole tradition in. Uh, of Anabaptism and pacifism, that enlist Jesus in terms of never using violence for anything, even self-defense. No, you know, I'm not endorsing that. I'm, I'm definitely not endorsing my taxes either. Uh, oh, and just in case you, you, just in case you couldn't tell through through Zoom, when I was talking about the the vote you know being stolen, I was being sarcastic. Just to be clear, this is being recorded. Um, uh, so, anyway, although it probably was, who knows? I'm not an American, just like Sam. Now. It does get tiring, though, when you try to look at all of this, and it seems like whoever you talk to, the assumption is Jesus is just like them. They would never say that. They would say that their views are patterned on Jesus. But really what they're doing is they're reading into Jesus anything they want him to be. So how do we get past this? Now, as a quick little tour through history, um... It used to be, and this is not a a good tour through history. This is going to be very, very uh, sort of potted and and focused on on one particular era, uh, sort of from post-Reformation to today and very Western. It used to be that Jesus was sort of predominantly seen as king. So the Bible uses a variety of metaphors for Jesus. You are aware of this. And so it used to be that Jesus was predominantly seen as king. Uh, this is obviously when you're dealing with a lot of sort of European civil uh, social states where you have all kinds of kings and rulers. And so the king has power and the king you know, can put to death rebels and the king is sort of embodies justice and all the rest. So the king is majestic and above everyone. And the king has sort of arbitrary power to put anyone to death that they want. And the king destroys rebels. And so when this is your primary metaphor or your primary image of Jesus, then you tend to approach him in a particular way. Now, it's not wrong. In fact, one of the things I'll argue over time is that we very often are actually completely wrong in our views. People are often wrong by being right. That is, except... There are other people, I won't mention who, but I mentioned him not too long ago. There are some people who you look at their views and you go, okay, you're just dead wrong. Like there's nothing redeemable about what you think whatsoever uh, in, in this particular context. But for most of us, it's it's not so much that we're completely wrong. It's that we're right, but don't have the balancing, the balancing truths. That is, we're looking at one facet and it's multifaceted, or we're looking at one side of the coin and we're, we're neglecting or negating the other side of the coin. So it's very often, is Jesus the King? Is he transcendent? Is he majestic? Absolutely. Of course he is. You can't lose that. But if that's your dominant metaphor, if that's your only metaphor for approaching Jesus, then you're going to run into some conceptual trouble when it comes to relationship and how he views people, how he emotes, how he relates, what he wants, etc. cetera. So Jesus then was also seen as God. And I think You know, around the time of the Reformation and a century or two after, particularly in the the Puritan stream and in Presbyterian circles, when you talked about Jesus, you really thought about Jesus as God. Jesus was the second person in the Trinity. His divine nature was what was most important about him. So when you talked about Christ, and this is actually interesting too, there's almost a lot more talk about Christ than about Jesus. And I realize that that's a reference to the same person. But Jesus very often seems to be used in context of his humanity and imminence and closeness to people. Christ very often in terms of his role and power and exaltation. And if you listen to people, so a lot of times we almost talk about Christ as an office. We talk about the president. It's very different to, to talk about, you know, some people talk about the president, other people talk about Joe, right? For Joe Biden. That's pretty different. Are right? you talking about Joe Biden, the manager talking about the president, of the office? And so for Christ, you know, it, when you listen to how people use Christ or Jesus, it's very interesting. Um, today it looks to me like there are a ton of people, a ton of evangelical circles where they almost never talk about Christ, they talk about Jesus. the, the accent is very much on his imminence and humanity. Whereas in the past, the accent seemed to be very much on his deity and his exaltation. He was high above us. He was transcendent. In the proper older sense of the term, he was terrible uh, and he was awful. Um, you know, he, yes, he loved us uh, and, and he condescended to save us. He was our savior, but he was always a majestic savior. You know, you, you never sort of came to him as, as an equal or a buddy. Uh, he was always your king. And that was sort of the main way that your relationship was constrained. Then, around the 1800s you have Jesus in liberal theology and liberal theology is pretty amorphous. But there Jesus, his, his deity isn't sort of inherent. It's not that he's the second person in the Trinity. A lot of the liberal theologians are denying the Trinity, at least in an ontological sense. You know they're suggesting that Jesus was a man just like just like any other human being. but, he was radically filled with a divine consciousness. He was radically filled with the spirit of love. And so Jesus is the best example of what it's possible to be as a human being. And so we can also be like Christ. Like there's nothing special about Jesus in that sense, except that Jesus, more than anyone else in history, sort of opened himself up to the infilling of. God, the divine spirit and love. And if we did that, then we would be Jesus too, or we would be like Christ. So he's the son of God in an adopted sense. And he's the son of, and he's divine in the same way that we can be divine. Human beings totally filled with uh, the, the spirit of deity. That was a very, very common view. A regular man, but specially filled by God. This is happening in the, sort of the eight, in, in the early 1800s and then expanded through liberals heyday in, in the early 1900s, although we still have a, a lot of this around today, uh, frankly. Now, interestingly enough, then if you look at America, you can actually see different depictions of Jesus depending where you are geographically in America throughout the 1800s. So, in the mid-1800s, um, around, you know, shortly before Sam arrived in Canada, uh, such a lame joke, why even make that one? Uh, you, you, everyone knows that that's not true. He, he arrived before that. Uh, you, you, you look at this, you say, well, well, when you were out on the frontier, the frontier, expanding out into the American West, was an awfully different place than when you were sort of settling down into a Boston or being somewhere on the eastern seaboard, or even down in Philadelphia or or somewhere like that. So Jesus, in terms of preaching out on the the frontier, um, you'd send preachers out there who would preach very simply of different levels of education and sophistication out west than you did out east. And so there was a lot of accent on Jesus as a rugged individualist, you know, Jesus as self-sufficient, sort of just simple, basic, clean living and morality. In fact, one of the things that that preachers were sent out to do was they were sent out into the West to try to... Uh, Tamp down the chaos, right? I, I mean, things were kind of out of control. We talk about the Wild West for a reason, although this probably you know, is mediated through Hollywood and pretty distorted. Um, but nonetheless, you know, you, you sent people out there to, to try to like bring in some law and order and control. And part of that was just through moral teaching endorsed by Jesus. But fascinatingly, your rugged individualist Jesus out in the American West was balanced by the Victorian image of Jesus. And of course the, the Victorian era is the same as the expansion era out in the Western United States. But what sort of Jesus do you get amongst the Victorians? And here's where you can you can jump right on in. This one is, I can't even tell you how many points this one's worth. What, what's the sort of image you get in the Victorian era about Jesus? Okay, interesting. So you're right. I mean, this is, this is obviously, there's no nuance here whatsoever, right? I'm just throwing out these massively broad claims, uh, which need to be you know, nuanced in all kinds of ways. But yes, you get a Jesus uh, in some circles who is puritanical, uh, moral, inflexible. Yes. What else, though? What other kind of presentation of Jesus do you get? Well, you get the kind of thing which is um, Jesus meek and mild, right? So that so that Jesus becomes very often actually pictured as a child, or with um, impeccably wavy brown hair, bright blue eyes, Uh, and I I don't say this in a I do not say this in a pejorative way, uh, or with any kind of uh, political agenda, but in in a proper sense of the term, sort of very effeminate. Um, very soft, and this is where you sort of get a lot of that um, depiction of of Jesus just just carrying the little lamb, right, nurturing. um, We get the hymns, you know, about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, uh, those kinds of things. And so you get a very sentimental, emotional Jesus, which not surprisingly, is also coming in response to some of the puritanical moralism, but also in terms of cultural history. Now you're at the time of Romanticism, and, and so now you have a movement culturally towards away from strict rationality to engagement in nature, uh, pastoral imagery, sheep, lambs, right, deer, water, fields, and, and so you, you, poetry. Emo- this is you know Wordsworth and and Wordsworth interesting enough is, is, is forever changes poetry him and Coleridge in lyrical ballads forever changes poetry and it's not the poetry they write so much uh, well actually all it is the poetry they write plus uh, Wordsworth's introductory essay to that collection where he basically says the point of poetry is to make you feel you know no one had thought that before people thought that poetry was to present truth and make you think Wordsworth says it's to make you feel. Well, you, you can maybe profitably hold thinking and feeling together, but now you start getting presentations of Jesus which are calculated to make you feel a certain thing, loved, accepted, nurtured, cared for. So gentle Jesus, meek and mild becomes like quite literally the poster boy of compassion and intimacy. That is a very, very far movement from a high and holy majestic king filled with wrath against his enemies, waiting to conquer them with an iron scepter. Very, you can't can't imagine the Victorian Jesus on a throne with an iron scepter with eyes flashing like fire, waiting to put all of his enemies under his feet and trample them down. So who's the real Jesus? Who's who's the right depiction? Then you know this as well, but in, in the US Civil War, God was enlisted in the North. God was enlisted in the South. Uh, Jesus was used to support slavery. Jesus was used to be the example of ending slavery. In fact, here's something, uh, that, that it might be slightly disconcerting. They did camp revival meetings in both the union and the Confederate armies. And we know historically that, uh, the, the conversion success rate amongst the Confederates fighting for slavery was higher than in the North, and yet they didn't lay down their arms. They kept fighting for slavery, now believing in Jesus. So Jesus was used for both sides, North and South. In the early 1900s, they had something called muscular Christianity, and, and you might think that, you know, with, with my massive size that, you know, I'm a proponent of muscular Christianity, but, but not the case. Uh, this is where, um, I, well, here's, here's a question for you. How many of you go to, um, you know, have, have gone to Christian sort of denominational camps or retreat centers? When, when did the the place where you go, where you've been, those denominational kind of retreat centers? When was it founded? Okay, 1950. Anyone else? No idea. Okay. <laughs> yeah so 1970 doesn't count uh it's a good try though if you look at denominational camp so so wesley acres uh, down near bloomfield ontario it's about i think 85 or 90 years old wesleyan camp Fairhaven's the agc camp uh celebrated their 85th anniversary not too long ago uh mbc celebrated their nine, their 90th anniversary last summer as you start plotting that out, you know why are all these camps started 80 90 years ago well, you're you're shortly sort of after First World War through the Roaring Twenties, kind of get moving into a somewhat depression era, pre-World War II. And there was this whole movement where Jesus is on the side of the outdoors and vitality and health and manliness. And you know, they they even had Girl Guides for Manliness and those sorts of things. Um, but, the, but the idea was, you know, Christians are, we're not weak. You know, we're, we're the, the best of the best. He had some of this with the um, Oxford uh, group or the Cambridge Seven, some of England's best cricket players uh, famously becoming Christians and then missionaries. Um, uh, Billy Sunday, you know, endorsing baseball and, and Jesus and these kinds of things down in the States. And so you have this movement where Jesus is for sports and health and all of the rest. Now, 1960s, you, know, you have the Civil Rights Movement, I already mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. You also had people who were arguing that Jesus was completely against racial integration. Now, today, I can point you to prominent um, evangelical conservative pastors. I guarantee a lot of you have read some of their books. Um, I can and listen to their podcasts. I can point you to, uh, but I won't, uh, but I won't name names. There are prominent evangelicals who are convinced that Jesus is for big oil and and more extraction of resources so that human beings have more power. Um, Jesus is also enlisted by those who would be tree huggers. Uh, Jesus is a conservative. Jesus is a communist. Uh, Jesus is for traditional home values. Jesus is also increasingly enlisted by the LGBTQA community. Um, So who is he? I mean, this is maybe this is kind of getting a little bit repetitive, you know. Uh, but just really try, and if it is, don't raise your hand. Um, but really trying to say, like, like look, w- w- there's a lot of confusion out there, and there is a lot of different ways of approaching him. I mean, if you look at uh, contemporary Christian music, it's often been noted that a lot of a lot of songs that are written about Jesus you could drop the name of Jesus and put in, you know, a a boyfriend or girlfriend's name and it wouldn't change the meaning of the song at all. It it would simply make it a traditional sort of love song. And so we're singing some of these sort of smaltzy romance songs to Jesus, you know, as if Jesus is a boyfriend or a girlfriend, well, you know, that's a very long way from the reformation view. Right. Um, And sorry, go ahead. Someone wants to say something. Or someone needs to mute themselves. Maybe that's, that's the other alternative. Um, also today, you know, I'm, I'm told by some people that, um, not, not speaking to me personally, but as I, as I have the misfortune of every once in a while needing to read, um, people's Twitter accounts or see what's current, uh, you know, basically I'm, I'm a false shepherd because I'm not leading my church to rebel against the government's COVID protocol. Well, and and that's not in the name of King Jesus. You know, King Jesus wants us to have our dominion rights. And well, who is this Jesus? So you have these poles, transcendence and imminence. He's high above us. And he's also intimately close to us. You know, is he our king? Is he our BFF? You know, is he just a sympathetic ear? Is he just there to comfort us? Is he to be worshiped in awe? Is he still filled with wrath, terrible, majestic, powerful? Is he God? Like who, who is he? Is he just a Socrates? Is he an avatar, a guru? You know, in Islam, Jesus is just a prophet. Uh, They believe the Bible was changed. Jesus didn't die on the cross. And Muslims think they actually honor Jesus more than Christians do, because they believe that God would never have allowed him to suffer that kind of death. So that all of that goes to say this. How can we know that we're not doing the same thing? Because it might seem like overkill to cite all of those examples. And maybe it is. And maybe it was. And if I've, if I've wasted your Saturday morning so far, I apologize. Because Saturday morning, if I remember from when I was a kid, this is when cartoons are on TV and, uh, and professional wrestling. So there's obviously some really good things that you can be involved in right now, you know, that you're missing out on. Um, But how do we know? Like, how do you, because, because these people are also reading the Bible. So I'll just let you, this isn't a quiz question. This is, this is a perspective question. Like how, how do you know? How do you know that we are not shaping jesus the same way that i think we probably transparently look at some of this and go that's crazy that people think jesus was like that that's so obviously wrong how do we avoid being snookered by our by our culture too and and if you stop and think about it and this is an honest question is jesus just like you like, like in a non-critical way, does Jesus have the political view that you have? I mean, is, is that surprising at all? You know, does Jesus have the, the, the view of all of these social issues? It, it just happens to be yours. Like, is that surprising to you at all? And it, it, because probably most of us are going to say, well, if Jesus, most of us probably are not going to say, well, you know what? I vote NDP, but I really believe Jesus wants me to vote conservative. Like, like I don't think anyone's going to conceptualize it that way, right? So it just always becomes by default, like what I think is what Jesus thinks. So how do we avoid this? Like, how do we actually shape ourselves on the image of Jesus rather than shaping Jesus in our image? Or is it even possible to do? Like, are we all at some level going to be bound by our cultural, theological, ecclesiastical structures? What do you think? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I I think that's helpful, actually. But then how... How do we know, or is it possible to know where we're going wrong though? Like, like how, how do you balance? It? And, it, and it's not sufficient, frankly, it's not sufficient to say, well, you just read the Bible more. I mean, you, you need to do that. Like, that's obvious, but how do you actually move towards understanding Jesus better and more accurately? Like what, how do you break out of your own slightly? How do you mean to move out of your own sort of cultural blinders? Okay. That's very interesting. You, you actually pay attention to some people who disagree with you. Now that's scary because obviously everyone who disagrees with you by definition is wrong. Right. And and so you might think, you know, how much can you learn from them? They're already wrong. And yet, as you read people from different perspectives, done profitably done as provided you're not doing it just to prove that they're wrong and you're right but if you actually read critically but try to be critical of your own positions as well it really is if nothing else I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to be able to build empathy and that's one of this is the only way actually I know how to do this is if you only ever read about uh people who are liberal politically if you only ever hear about political liberals through conservative commentators you will never understand political liberals ever this and vice versa and and so i'm convinced if you only watch fox news you will never understand the left never it's not possible if you only watch CNN, you will never understand the right. It's not possible. If you only read conservative evangelical theologians, you will never understand liberal theology. You, you just won't. You'll, it will always be distorted. And so at some level, and, and this is even to bring it back to the conservative evangelicalism, if you only ever read about presbyterians mediated through baptist writers you will never have a deep engagement and empathy with presbyterians and vice versa if you only ever read about baptists through presbyterian writers you'll never understand baptists and and i mean charismatic and non charismatic I mean, you can go on and on and on dispensationalists and all and millennialists or whatever it is you have to read the original writers and very often you find out uh, when you do that that like there is a reason why people think some of these things, right? And and sometimes it's not that hard to understand where they're coming from. And sometimes it's actually really helpful where you realize that even if you disagree, the way that they arrived at their position is respectable, and they are respectable. That is, you can genuinely disagree, but have an enormous amount of respect for this individual. Now Certain positions disqualify that, but I, I won't tell you which which positions those are. Uh, anything else? Yeah, and that's um, that's really important as well. Actually, uh, you know, you, you you expose yourself to some other cultures, and there's commonality, but very often. There there are theological problems that we have in sort of our affluent Western society that a lot of people in other parts of the world don't have. They they just don't see the same issues that we see. Plus, other parts of the world tend to do much better, much better than we do um, in recognizing certain massively important motifs and themes in scripture that we tend to ignore so so we tend to treat salvation very individualistic as, as a personal experience sort of you and jesus and then we kind of throw a bunch of individuals together and, and we talk a lot about community but how much real community is there in our western churches it seems to be something that people complain about all the time like where is the actual authentic community well you know you, you go to africa for example and there are a ton of places where you don't need to teach them about community. They they, they experience, but they also see it. And and they read the New Testament through communal lenses very differently than what we do in the West, right? Um, So exposure to different cultures is very helpful. C.S. Lewis uh, said that for every new book you read, you should read an old book. Um, Meaning that reading past author so so if you want to know how is jesus depicted don't just sing contemporary christian music and don't just read you know books that have been published in the last 20 or 20 years or so like go back and read an author who was writing in the 1800s go back and read an author who was writing in the 1600s and you'll start to see over time we can almost do time travel that way And, and as much as we can dip into other cultures today we can also dip into other eras of history that can be very helpful uh because one and one of the things it does you can also see how blinkered some of these people are by their culture as our as culture has moved on you can look back and go oh my goodness you could only possibly think that living in this cultural era and then that helps you become a little bit more self-conscious about the cultural factors that you experience as well so culture reading in different periods of history um anything else Yeah, we self self conscious analysis sort of, of of our presuppositions. You know what are, what is my frame of reference? Um, what background did I grow up in? You know what, what was I taught? You know sort of from a young age. What's my own sort of pilgrimage and certain thinking through various issues with Jesus and all of the rest? Yeah, very helpful and and hopefully, I mean, what we're doing today a little bit is. You do learn these things in community as well, in conversation with one another. Now, a huge problem with this, though, in, in my judgment is, and again, it's easier. It's always easier to see it in other people than in yourself. Always. I mean, this is a problem with blind spots. Like it's really easy to see someone else's blind spots. By definition, you don't see your own right. It, here, here's a clue: if you see your own blind spot, it's not your blind spot. Uh, and, and so, one of the things that you know that I, that I fear is a lot of people think they're actually engaged in meaningful exploration together in community, but they're only speaking in an echo chamber. Like, like, and you see some of of some of this preaching and teaching. And, and it's like being at a political rally where people are just, they're just stirring each other up, you know, and, and some of this, I'll, I'll be honest, some of this is coming from, from recently seeing a clip, uh, which was appalling, uh, from, you know, a, a church not r- actually right down in your area um, that's currently resisting uh, you know, the, the government's regulations, uh, and they, they've opened up their church and 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 various things, gotten in trouble with the law, uh, and then complained about their, how they're being persecuted. Um, you know, I, I saw, you know, a clip of this, and, and the pastor's just being, uh, in in my judgment, just ignorant, like literally ignorant, uh, like in both definitions of the term, which is somewhat hard to do, uh, you know, to, to actually conduct yourself in a way which, which, allows a term to be applied to you in two completely different ways, uh, but it's like uninformed and rude. And, and he's, just being uninf- he's just being rude about everyone else. And, and you can't help but notice that all of the people that you're chastising and yelling about, none of them are there. Like, who are you talking to? What are you talking about? And, and, and so it becomes just sort of a self-aggrandizing, you know, beating your own chest kind of, of exercise in an echo chamber and the people say amen because you're not teaching them anything you you're just you're just spouting their political slogans on, in in the name of religion but how much do we do that like like is this morning are we just an echo chamber we're really there's not much of a point in us talking trying to see things from other perspectives because we're all going to roughly share the same perspective and and, and you can almost tell how um, sort of how much hegemony there is when you actually think you have diversity because in your group, there's someone who supports baptizing infants and someone who supports baptizing believers only, or you're pretty convinced that like you have a tremendous amount of diversity because you let different people, you have members of your organization who have a different view about the millennium. Like, there are some ways that if you parse it out as diversity, you can only look at it as diversity because you're 99.5% the same. And, and so you, you know you go into your, your Tim Hortons again and you say, Hey, you know what? You should come up to, to our church. Oh man, we're wildly diverse in our church. Like we have some people who are Calvinists and we have some people who are Arminians and they go like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of those terms in my life. Then you start explaining, oh, well, well, some of us believe that we use our free will to receive Jesus and some of us believe that God chooses his elect and then regenerates them so they can believe in Jesus. And they go, that's a difference? Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's your diversity? I mean, it, it, it's like conservatives, you know, the, the conservative party thinking they're diverse, because some person, you know, favors a, a tax cut to corporations of a billion dollars. And one other person favors a tax cut of corpor- to corporations by 1.1 billion. It's like, oh, we're so diverse. Like, well, you're not really diverse. You know, there, there, there's just a few little touchy differences here. It's hairsplitting differences. So, we have to be really careful that actually even in conversation our conversation is genuinely working in community together where we're not just echoing the same 99 percent of everything we'll never grow that way right yeah go ahead yeah that's actually really helpful um and you're right like at some level the same people who read the same bible will also appeal to the same spirit, right? Um, And this is actually one of the things I have to admit. This is one of the things that that currently um, I'm struggling with a fair bit in terms of parsing out the experience. And that is, we talk about being led and taught by the Holy Spirit. I don't know any way of actually framing out the epistemology of that that is how do you know when it's just your thought and when it's the Holy Spirit leading you to think something? And I've never read anyone who's helpful in terms of discerning that. Um, it, it basically becomes a subjective impression, which then is used by all kinds of people in mutually exclusive ways. Nonetheless, you're right. There has to be something of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. Because until Pentecost, you uh, yeah, the, the disciples, and you actually get this sort of parenthetical editorial comments in the Gospels. The, the disciples are depicted often as only partially understanding or not understanding at all. And then you'll get references where um, it wasn't until after the resurrection that, you know, John too. The, when Jesus talking about destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it again, John has a parenthetical comment. It wasn't until after the, the resurrection that we understood that he, the temple he meant was his body, right? And so you, you definitely have something happen on Pentecost which allows the disciples to retroactively look back on what they experienced with Jesus and interpret it in a fresh way. So the spirit is essential. Um, the scripture is essential. How that actually plays into this, it may, it's difficult to define, at least for me, but you're right. Yeah, that's actually, um, that may be... Um, That may be the most difficult problem to me at this point in my life. Um, The self-referentiality of all of the New Testament writings and the prophets as well. Paul says, I have the authority of the Lord. I've met other people who who have talked to me and told me they are prophets from God. And that if I don't do it, I, I, literally, I've had people come in, you know, I, Crestwick, actually when I first first two months there, someone came into me and said, I'm a prophet, I'm living in the woods. And he was, uh, he was living in the woods. I'm not saying about a prophet. Um, and he said, like, unless you do this, 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 that God's going to condemn the church. Well, that's just crazy to me. But frankly, his message wasn't any different from the sort of thing you got in a lot of the prophets in the scripture. Um, I, I, I not infrequently get emails from, Nigerian princesses who need help. And you'll be happy to know that there are now 13 Nigerian princesses that I support monthly uh, because they are in such woeful state. And one day I'm going to be a multi-billionaire because of their diamond and ruby collection, which they're going to leave to me in their will. Uh, so, you know, I, I get lots of emails from that. But also, you know, I, I get emails from people who are telling me about the end of the world and and they're you know, quoting revelation and, and all these sorts of things. So it kind of reads a little bit like, I'm not sure if you've ever read Ezekiel, but I somewhat have sympathy. Like when, I, when I was teaching at, at Toronto Baptist Seminary, you look at Allen Gardens and you see people uh, who are yelling and fighting the air and you know, screaming about the end of the world. And you kind of feel like Ezekiel would have fit right in. Like he ties himself down and then eats meals cooked over cow manure to symbolize a siege that's coming. And like If I saw that in Allen Gardens, I would not think that's a prophet. I think that that's a lunatic, right? And so how do you parse it? How do you actually determine? No, no this person who's, who's cutting off his beard with a sword and scattering his whiskers to the wind, that's a symbolic act that God has told him to do. And that person over there is crazy, who's doing something which seems a lot more civil, like, like how, how do you start parsing that out? What if, what if Paul wasn't filled by the spirit? What if he was a religious genius? What if he had a charismatic personality that impressed itself upon people? I mean, you read some of the things that he says, it's pretty harsh. Uh, and, and some of it seems kind of cultural. So, so that, is, that becomes a, the huge question. And this is why we talk about the, the scriptures being our authority, is if you don't have the scriptures as the word of God, then what do you have? Like, where is the certainty in anything, right? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's very difficult um, to try to sort some of that stuff out. Now, one thing I'll say now, uh, someone you know, mentioned, um, yeah, Matt sort of wrote a comment. You know, there's a situation where the rule of scripture is one interpretation of multiple applications. This is true too, where sometimes you know, the, the meaning of scripture is one, just like there is one Jesus. But there can be multiple applications of the same. So one text can be applied in a host of manners um, because principles can be applied. Usually you you, you need to know your actual existential situation to apply a text. So you have the principle of the text. Here's Here's the norm, but then how do you apply the norm? Well, that's situational. So there are all kinds of applications possible from particular texts. And so that can be sometimes confusing as well. What does Jesus want me to do? Well, here's the principle, but how does this actually work out in application in your situation? That's another, that's a totally separate question sometimes. It's really hard, right? So the one thing I'll say now uh, is I think we would need to work uh, really hard at constantly self-correcting. And, and, and part of that is this. We in the West, in evangelicalism to me, increasingly I'm convinced, we excel with theological bumper stickers. Like that's about the range of our thinking. We want to reduce everything, even complex realities to something really simple and snappy. And so one of the things that is required, I think, is to actually look at it. Maybe this is what you can do sort of for homework because you're all at home. Um, Like maybe write down or think about how do you primarily conceptualize Jesus? Like, like, what are the things that come to mind? Not the theological things. So, so you can all make a list of all the things that Jesus is. So that's fine. But how do you actually think about Jesus? Like, do you think about Jesus as your best friend? Is that the primary referent for you? Do you have a hard time conceiving of Jesus as your friend at all? Like, like is he the majestic one? Are you scared of Jesus? Like, like do, you, do you picture him sort of as that shepherd comforting the lamb. So you picture him as the one who to destroy his enemies and cast them into hell. I mean, and then what biblical support do you have for this? So I think one of the things that we need to do is recognize that very often we are approaching a partial Jesus because we allow a particular image that touches us at one point in our lives to predominate and then domesticate all of the others. So to sort of free up all of those different images so that there aren't ins- they're not subservient to one another. Um, because you will have a different Jesus if you look at him as an inflexible king who's about to destroy all of his enemies versus a humble shepherd, meek and mild. Like if you only conceptualize one way, you'll distort the other one. So, so to sort of just really let the biblical data about Jesus sort of rise to the top, l- l- separate it a little bit and see which ones you focus on. And then maybe it's time to, to turn the gem like Maybe it's time to turn the facet. So if you've never really reflected on what it means that Jesus is the vine, John 15, and you are the branches, maybe spend some time thinking about that. He's a vine. I, I, I'm rooted in him. I grow in him. That's a different image than him being a king. And, and so you just sort of self-consciously look at the ones that are predominant for you and which ones are sort of not even intentionally. But what kind of imagery and teachings of Jesus you sort of just, just keep as secondary or keep on the back burner. And just so self-conscious awareness, I think, can be very helpful. Now, you will be shocked. Uh, and, I, and I know that this has actually never happened before, and I, I apologize for this. You you who have been part of Sunday school will be absolutely flabbergasted to know that um, that's not what I, I I was going to talk about the humanity of Christ from the Bible today. That was my, that was supposed to take 10 minutes. Like that, that was my introductory material. That was only for 10 minutes. And yet somehow for the first time in my life, I did not cover the material. I actually thought that we'd be spending most of our time on never happened before. And I just, I feel like I was derailed by people just randomly guessing Fidel Castro at inopportune moments and Sam's profound knowledge of American politics. It just, it just threw me off from everything that was going on. So next week we will do this week. All right, Sam, I think you're, you're in charge. Maybe I should say, does anyone have any quick questions or comments? I mean, it is your Saturday morning. These are precious, precious moments for you. Um also interesting. of precious moments perfect segue to something else I want to say. if you really want to understand a huge amount of of evangelicalism, spend some time thinking and reflecting on that precious moments the way they depict Jesus. That is critical actually in understanding a massive amount of how evangelicals perceive our Lord yeah you know that that's a great question that's actually a, a great observation um, sounds like an interesting book. I've never read that one. I mean, the the number of books I've read is very, 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 very small compared to the number of books that there are to read. Um, See, one of the things that we actually need to resist is we need to resist picking the parts about Jesus that we like. That's the first thing. Um, If you've ever noticed, when people are are choosing about the Bible, like I've never met anyone who says, you know, I really just can't believe this heaven stuff, but I accept the doctrine of hell because scripture teaches it. Like we, we invariably cut out what we don't like. No one ever has a cut and paste Bible which doesn't match their own inclinations, never, right? Um, so we have to resist then cobbling together a Jesus. And, and so your, your point's very well taken. And another error is then we then start sort of clipping and choosing and cutting and pasting a Jesus together. So we assemble one, who's a little bit socialist, but only as far as we're comfortable and a little bit conservative because we like a free market economy with some, with a, with a healthy welfare state. And, and you know, Jesus, he, he's all for recycling, but, you know, he, he's not totally for green energy because and you go on and on and on and on. Like I, when Castro says, as, as Sylvie you know, knows Castro very well, you know, when Castro says Christ was a great revolutionary, I want to say, yes, I agree because part of the ministry of Christ was totally revolutionary in his society. I have a book called Jesus Feminist. Was Jesus a feminist? Depends how you define feminism. Part of me wants to say absolutely. I also want to say not even remotely the way you think uh, after you read the book. So is Jesus a feminist? Well, yes and no. Is Jesus a, a communist? No. Is he? Are there elements of socialism in Christ's teachings? How do you define socialism? Uh, was there compassion for the poor in Christ's teachings? Absolutely. Was there taking care of the poor all through God's law? Of course. And, and so is Jesus a, a, a capital C conservative? Well, he's not an absolute liberal. Maybe actually... Jesus wouldn't fit comfortably into the conformity of any of our political parties. Like, maybe that's worth thinking. Maybe he's not a Republican or a Democrat. So I think one of the things we need to do is we need to learn from how people see Jesus. And then instead of cobbling together sort of a pastiche of how people interpret Jesus, what we need to do is we need to look at How fair is their interpretation of Jesus to the actual gospel evidence of Jesus? And then you can start to see, yes, this is a fair point someone makes precisely because they actually align with what the gospel presentation is. So then we're using people's interpretation to help us understand the gospels, whereas too often, you know, the gospel, it's almost like the gospel is, you have your interpretation, then you bring the gospel over to support it with with verses, rather than actually starting with the Gospels and seeing what you can lead out of it. And does this actually exegetically fit this view? Is there evidence to support this view? Sometimes we use, you know, we, we get it backwards. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's there. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, you 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 can see where people struggle. I mean, I, I the Rwandan genocide is something that I struggle with uh, to a fair degree. Um, you can see where people are coming from. But yeah, you also have to sort of bring back the norm. And, and this partly depends on, on your view of Jesus. So some people will say, well, well, Jesus is King and, you know, he rules sovereignly over the nations. And, and this is part of his eternal plan. He decreed that genocide. And they're very and just, just like that. Other people will say, well, well, Jesus is heartbroken about what happened in Rwanda. He He would have liked to stop it, but but, you know, he, he can't trespass on people's free will. Well, again, which Jesus are you talking? Like, how do you, con- well, you have to have a conception of Jesus that then you try to understand what's going on in the world on the basis of who you think Jesus is. And sometimes there's, and sometimes have to be honest, there is a flow that goes back and forth. Like, so we look at events and events shape our view of God and theology, but, but we also interpret events on the basis of our view of God and theology. Right. So 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 how we view Jesus helps us interpret things. And, and but then events also challenge our view of Jesus in terms of logical coherence and consistency and all of the rest. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, all right. Sam, go ahead.